You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. What are you doing in Budapest? I live here. Yeah, we just oh, really? uh, <laughs> we just we just finished building the home and we we moved in this week and uh uh our parents are here too yeah they've been uh they're loving it so far they've been complaining i guess they have some neighbors back in uh back in west dallas who are real hooligans kids are running around naked all day and stuff like this so not just the kids (laughs) (laughs) yeah my parents left tuesday to fly over for his wedding ceremony oh i didn't know this and you're, you're getting married soon this is try number three with covid Oh, not not like woman number three, just like no. attempt at the same woman <laughs> number three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to like I don't want to like hijack this conversation off the gun, but like Bracken, you know Macaulay pretty dang well. I don't know anything, so I don't even like. Why are you in Budapest? I guess how does one end up there? I've been on, I've been here on and off since 2016, so it's actually at a point where it's it's a little uh, backwards in that. I feel like this is home for me. And, and when I fly to the U.S., it feels like I'm traveling away. Uh, but, yeah, I met a, met a girl back in 2016 and uh, followed her out here when her visa expired. Long story short, here we are. They're supposed to get married last, what, June? Mm-hmm. And it was obviously canceled and then tried again in September, October, and it was canceled. So they just went to the courthouse, got married. And now this is the third try at a public ceremony. So they're already, they've been married almost a year, but mm-hmm. they're finally having people come over for it. And we couldn't get there because Braden's passport expired August 11th. And we didn't know that until too late. And you can't get passports expedited right now. Then you leave Braden at home, like home alone, fend for himself, leave out like a couple boxes of cereal and uh, some mac and cheese and you guys leave. He'll figure it out. He'd be fine. Isn't Macaulay pretty important, his wedding? I don't know. Evidently not. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important, but I respect I respect the pandemic, Kirk. You know, it's it's not a good time to be traveling, honestly. Like, if they came out here, they'd be likely under quarantine and not able to go anywhere. And it's like house arrest almost, you know? So I, I even told them, I said, hey, we'll do this again. Come out here later. We'll explore, but it's, it's not a good time to be doing this. Not that this is the top the focus of our conversation, but are are you having like a big wedding, a small wedding, considering most family is her family in Budapest? They're they're spread out in Europe, yeah. So most of them are coming in. Um and it was originally about a hundred people. Now it would be I think seventy or eighty. We've lost some over this last year. One of his good friends is getting married the same weekend here. Actually up by you, right? Is it Twin Cities? Yeah, Prescott area. Yeah, not far. Yeah. So now all his American friends are going to go to that one. <laughs> so n- no one's coming over other than my yeah, parents. Yeah. Her, her family is going to think you have no friends, and they're going to wonder why she's marrying this hooligan. No, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> That's the worst part of not being able to get over there. Obviously, we want to support them, but it's bad optics of us not coming. It is what it is. It's it's not bad. Uh, and shoot, we've got a we've got a house here, 
we used to have a little flat in the in the city and if if you came here there would be nowhere to stay but now we have a, a real home so next time we give you the full experience you can uh come hunt for hedgehogs with us <laughs> do you know that they have hedgehogs instead of raccoons wait don't mess with me right now you have hedgehogs there my single my number one biggest reason for wanting to get over there is to catch a hedgehog hedgehogs are littler than raccoons aren't they mm-hmm yeah, they're like the size of like a bunny or small. They don't replace them on the ecosystem, but or in like a lineup. But they replace them in their their purpose. They prowl at night the alleys and they eat food out of your garbage cans. Really? He sent me a a, a message this morning of a hedgehog. What was he eating your figs? Mm-hmm. He's poking it with like a napkin. Well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. There is one girl that I went to college with who's going to be very upset that you hunt them because she had them as pets. And I believed she would not be approving of your hedgehog hunting or whatever you do there. Listen, they're the worst pets ever. Bracken and I had a, uh, uh, a teammate who had one. This thing sniffled 24-7. We had to sleep over at his house <laughs> one night. And I remember just it cried the whole night. It kept us up. And they're like disease-ridden, to use the words of, of Kevin Donahue. They're filthy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you listen. Yeah, I had to do some... Uh, and I'm not going to compliment you guys and tell you what a good job you've been doing uh, because I think he did enough for uh, for six episodes. Yeah, we, we I cut I cut like six minutes of, <laughs> of of verbal flatulations out of there. Bracken, I think you should introduce your brother because I certainly cannot the way you could. This is Macaulay Crocker. He is three years younger than me, and we are, I would say, as close to identical twins is two people can be with without being at all similar like we have every single shared trait but the opposite side of the coin we're the exact same height and we have at the absolute opposite body proportions we have the exact same prs throughout almost all of our events but we did them at different times of our life and with different training our personalities are very similar yet totally different so we back when I had hair, we were mistaken for twins often. And so we were that similar, mm-hmm. and yet we're nothing at all alike at the same time. Is that accurate, Macaulay? That, that's a pretty good intro. I can't, I can't do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Macaulay, thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure it was, to be here. It was good having you. <laughs> yeah, was, huh. you, uh, yeah, you guys talk enough. We don't need to extend this another 90 minutes. Um, <laughs> You guys aesthetically look very similar, I would say. Until until you see us for a while, then you realize even our face, we have like opposite proportions everywhere. Mm. At first, people say, oh, my goodness, are you twins? And then after a while, they say, oh, you look nothing alike. <laughs> so if you know me, you know him. But if you know me well, you don't know him well, if that makes sense. I, th- I think so. Yeah. I, um, I want to know right off the bat, Macaulay, why you are uh... – you are the the man who never has never was. You never materialized the way that I think Brother Bracken would have liked to uh, seen you come come about in in this sport. That's just a wanna... harsh intro. No, well, like you just ripping the bandaid off. Well, here you, you flinging I mean, open the komodo. <laughs> all Bracken does is basically sing your praises constantly. Right? I I mean, I would say over the episodes, if you haven't been referred to, maybe. 50 times I'd be shocked always as in Macaulay, you know, was or could be or should be or has run into roadblocks along the way and is why he's not. But 
Like you were, you're a talent, man. That's all I know about you. Bracken has been a fantastic MC over the years, unofficial MC for me. Prior to me ever joining the sport, I had people reaching out talking about this massive uh, talent. And I was like, what is he telling them? You know, him and I are the same in, in every aspect. I don't think that's the story he's, he's told people over the time, which I appreciate. Uh, I think it's, it's good to have that mystique around you, whether it's, whether it's true or not. Um, well, this is, this is the general outline I've said, which is we have all the same running times. We have the same vertical leap. We have the same lifting stats, but you're three years younger and you are better at long distance than I am. And so on paper, you were me with better endurance, which worst, worst case scenario is still passable. <laughs> I think you have better, better endurance, but we'll never know. There is no, there's no what could have been, you know, there, there's only w- what's on paper. Is there any, is there any, what could be still out there? Is there any like dot, dot, dots in front of this or no? McCauley? No, that, that bridge was long since crossed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but you know what? I, I mean, OCR was incredible. I've really enjoyed that, that chapter and uh, getting to race with Bracken was, was really fun. You know, like that's what kids want when they're little. Like we used to talk about growing up and, being professional athletes together or whatnot. And then we found ourselves uh, doing that for a couple of years, traveling around and it was good. But, uh, you know, for me, uh, this is a conversation I've had a lot over, over the years with, with people, not so, so much anymore, uh, but, but in the old days, uh, wondering why I walked away. Really at the end of the day, uh, I got a taste of it. And when I arrived, I think I had a little bit of imposter syndrome. I think everyone does when they come over to OCR and I realized it, it wasn't imposter syndrome. And I, I scratched that itch. I, I'd made a list of guys that, that I wanted to race and beat. And I, I got to do that. got to do the pro team. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything anymore, but at one point that was a really unique, uh, difficult thing to do. And at that point I, I just felt satiated and, uh, you know, ready, ready for the next thing. I think, I think there's something that is present in the sport of OCR that's unique. It's something of a, um, what would you call it? Some sort of uh, hedonistic treadmill, right? Where guys get a taste of something and they like that. It's different for everyone. The social media, uh, the following, the, the clout, the recognition. For some, it's just racing. But, but athletes chase that forever and, and they don't understand when they've maxed or when they peaked. We see it in, in MMA all the time, Brack and I like watching that where guys fall off and it's tough to watch. I got what I wanted and I was, I guess I was ready for the, for the next thing. And uh, that's what I tell people. Is that the truth? <laughs> As Bracken knows, there's a lot more to it, but, but that's been my story over time about why I, uh, I walked away back in, what was that, 2015? Well, I think we'll get into all of the why and the how and all of that. But the, the fact remains that it was my dream, not his, that I was passionate about it. And I think we'll see the thread today, which was that there are very few things that he and I share true passions about. And OCR was not one of them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you feel like his uh, his description there was, was accurate, Bracken? I'd say it's accurate up until the point of whatever else was left unsaid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fair. I don't think it was yeah. inaccurate there's there's more to it I'm sure but very accurate what was what was said 
I guess I didn't know that you were on the pro team, Macaulay. It was short. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't. I didn't even know that was a that was a deal. So you had raced enough and done well enough where you you got asked to be on the pro team. What year was that? Mm, that that might have been. Bracken can correct me, but that might have been end of 2014, beginning of 2015. Uh, that that fall prior to 2015, I think, is when it happened. Uh, and and it wasn't a traditional spot. What what Spartan was looking to do at the time is they had. Uh, they were really focused on creating this this stadium sprint series, which I know they they don't really put too much emphasis on anymore. But they wanted someone who was a Spartan team who could win the championship series. And Bracken had something going on. Maybe he missed some races, so he couldn't win the series. So I was in a nice place to do it. So I just had a spot waiting for me there. They wanted someone wearing Spartan on the podium. So they created a spot for it. It was myself and... Kate Kramer. Kate Kramer, yeah, who was a monster at the time. I remember she was just finishing like a minute down on the the men in some of the the stadium sprints. Yeah, they created Mm -hmm. a a stadium specialist pro team spot, one spot. Uh It was a totally different contract, just flights, uh, per diem, anything, but it was only based around those events. You didn't. You didn't have anything based on anything else. So that was a spot where they were as egotistical as ever at that time. And they needed a pro team member to win the stadium series. So they had to create a pro team spot so that they could have a pro team member win that because the other guys weren't focused on it. So someone was set up to win it that wasn't one of their guys and that wouldn't fly with them. Did you provide that for them with the the winning the series, Macaulay? How did that work out, Bracken? I don't think it worked out well. (laughs) Did you win one year or no? No, no, I didn't. I had, I had just was like that a, the whole Hawaii debacle and the yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. I, I think we should get to that as we get to the race stories. There's a whole debacle, a season long debacle there. Well, do we want to start from the beginning and then get get to now, or what do we want to do, Bracken? Do you want to talk about the the end of that, the middle, and then do beginning, middle, end, or just get to that when we get to it? You're the boss today, Bracken. I think it's important to understand your, the scope of your injuries as well, Macaulay. So I think we'll save that season for wh- when we get down that path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I so this is going to be a weird – go ahead. Well, I just really have one question. It's all I really care about this whole podcast, and that is, is Bracken – was Bracken a, a decent older brother? That's all I really care about. Or was he a real a-hole? Real a-hole. Real a-hole. Yeah, yeah, it was difficult. It was like a boy named It, if you've ever read that book. I have not. Uh, You're not missing anything. He was fantastic, yeah. I know siblings always talk about fighting and beating beating the crap out of each other and whatnot, but but there was none of that, yeah. No, he was not not to get all uh, overdramatic, but like he was just, he was at an age where he was in a different part of life. When I was in middle school, he was in high school. I was in high school, he was in college, and it was always that thing I was chasing. He was the he was that that main role model for me. So it was fun. So I don't think mm-hmm. I ended up as the person, you know, I wanted to be. I think I ended up uh just trying to follow his steps, do the four sports, do do what he was doing, go to the school he went to, all of that. Wow. But then ultimately realizing that maybe your you you realize your interests potentially eventually were also including other things than Bracken's interests. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a heavy statement. I didn't wind up the person I wanted to be. I wound up the version of him I thought I was supposed to be. <laughs> have you have you corrected that yet? Or do you, are you f- still undoing my damage? 
<laughs> oh, de- definitely true through through high school, I'll say. Yeah. That's typical, though, I feel like. Younger, older brother. You said you're three years apart? Mm-hmm. The same thing. My dad was a runner, and I lo- grew up looking up to him. I wanted to be that. It just happens that it stuck, right? So I'll set the stage from my point of view, and then, McCall, you can take over. When when we were young, we were a, a sport-based family. Nothing was pushed upon us, but that was just the environment we grew up in. And our older sister left home when she was 12-ish to go to a national training center for gymnastics. And so it was really just Macaulay and I, and then my younger sister, seven years younger. So she was very clearly not one of us. She was the little kid. And so it was he and I, and all of our playtime was together. So we were we were just always together doing whatever sport, was sharing whatever dream, but it was never against each other from my perspective. It was together. It was a win for a Crockers, a win for the Crockers rather than vice versa. But so growing up, we were each other's partner the whole way through. And I guess that takes Mac back to where did your athletic journey begin? (laughs) He dropped that question on you. If, if you've listened to Bracken's, any of Bracken's podcasts, it's the exact same. Came up in, uh, came up in gymnastics, uh, played baseball with, with Bracken when we were young. We were actually quite the, quite the duo. I think I was in second grade, you were in fifth. So we were playing with mm-hmm. the fifth and sixth graders in baseball. We were playing second base and shortstop together, turn in two. Macaulay always got to play up on teams. So he was playing on our fifth and sixth hardball team when he was in second grade because mm-hmm. he was very explosive as a young athlete. And we had worked together so much that we knew how to play together. So, yeah, we were the second base shortstop combination when he was in second grade on my fifth and sixth grade team. And that was kind of the – how things worked. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, like we were turning double plays as a second and fifth grader together on a hardball team. It was kind of cool. No, it was fun. It was fun. Just for understanding, sorry, I don't know if I know the order because you talked about like a win for the a Crocker or a win for Macaulay is really a win for the Crocker family and all the kids. What order do you guys fall in? Because you have what? There's th- four of you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mariah, the the oldest. She was the she was the gymnast, and then uh, Bracken. Myself and then our younger sister, Marin, who's out. Where is she now? She's in uh, Sweden playing basketball. Yeah, she flies out in a few days to go mm-hmm. play. She's heading back to play pro ball again. Wow. Did everybody spread their wings and fly, and you just had to move right next door to your parents? You have, <laughs> you have people all over this world, and then Bracken is still just hanging on to, on a leash. We flew, and then we came back. That's true. That's true. Okay, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to understand the order of the siblings and stuff. Yeah. Now I know you guys like to uh, like to go back. So uh, I mean, I can I can get into it. Normally, I wouldn't do such a thing, but yeah, at that age, I I honestly, our family was just sports oriented, and I thought that was it for me. I remember throwing a throwing a one hitter against the fifth graders, and uh, I remember when I hit a baseball, I could always choose where on the field I wanted to hit that baseball. You know, like little things you can't normally kids shouldn't be able to do. And I could I could run. I remember uh, doing Wisconsin State, getting, you know, the Badger Badger games, I think they were called being the only white kid there and and that kind of thing. And I remember when I ran, I felt like a horse. And what I mean by that is 10 years later, I watched Adrian Peterson run with the football. And I thought that's how I always felt. You're galloping. So I just assumed I would be an athlete. And then one night, uh, one day, basically, uh, everyone else grew and I lost the ability to do anything whatsoever. Just like Bracken. 
<laughs> and uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. So then uh, that's when uh, the undersized, uh, low confidence uh, kid moves over to to distance running, right? Yeah, and and to to avoid over just wiping over it. The I don't think that's a term wiping over. It. <laughs> to avoid that being wiped over. When he talks about the Badger State Games, it was Badger State Games and Junior Olympics. It was statewide competitions, and he was top three in the 100 and 200-meter dash against all, like, Milwaukee Striders, uh, everyone, every kid in the state of Wisconsin for two or three straight years, all the way up until probably fifth or sixth grade when everyone started maturing. So he was he was one of the top three sprinters in the state, and just like me, overnight, we lost it. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand that. What, is, what does that mean, you lost it? We just started getting slow. Mm-hmm. We were fast little kids and every little kid started growing into men and we started maturity three years later. Oh, so you just didn't keep up with the growth rate at that point of like puberty. But then it never came back. <laughs> we matured into distance runners rather than returning to sprinters. That is so atypical, I feel. Yeah, but but even even in fifth grade, my body had already started betraying me. As ridiculous as that sounds, I developed uh, this this uh, crunchy shoulder syndrome. I would call it where if you heard me move my shoulder, it was just like gravel. I could no longer throw over my. Sh- I couldn't throw football. I couldn't throw baseball. And then I developed these uh, these massive Oscar slaughters, which uh, you you may have seen people with them before, but mine are like an inch and a half out from my knee. And those were debilitating and just overnight, like things, this should happen when you're like 25, but that started happening to me at a young age. And that kind of set probably the the standard for what, I, what I've dealt with uh, all the way till today to touch on Bracken's uh, injury comment. Just uh, a little ridiculous. Hmm. Ajit Slaughter's is one of those things where when it's bad, somebody could like sneeze on your knee mm-hmm. and it would send you through the roof in excruciating pain. Yeah, let me show you this bad boy. Oh, maybe you can't see it too much there, but I can see it. Oh, yeah. His knee bumps when they first started looked like disturbing. I I'd never seen anything like it. It was like a mountain just grew below his kneecap, and they were so painful, and it was bizarre. And I never dealt with any of that. But his he's he's he says my body started betraying me, but that's kind of how it's felt throughout the years. Things just. My dad used to joke that he wasn't quite put together correctly. <laughs> Like there was like all the pieces were there, but there was an extra piece or two thrown in and one piece wasn't attached correctly as like shoulder blades, knees, something in his forearm. He always had little extra protuberances that weren't supposed to be there. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. So that kind of continued. Um, yeah, started started running in high school, kind of followed Bracken's track. I, I watched him um, kind of develop into a good runner his junior year. And uh, I was an eighth grader, so I decided I would run run track and cross country in high school. So when I got there, he was a senior. I was a freshman, uh, joined the team, and, and we ran together for a year. And uh, uh, first year didn't go great. I had I had a couple flashes. My very first meet, um, it was an indoor meet at our Central High. It's this tiny little. Mu- I'm not sure what the surface is. It's like concrete with a, with just a touch of. Uh, of rubber over Wait, West Dallas Central? Yeah, 100, 160 tracks. So it was 10 laps to a mile, and, and they just... I, I, coached, I coached track at that school, uh, 
and we use that track exclusively for training. So I'm very familiar yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a beautiful, uh, yeah. What a beautiful space there. So sharp that you can almost not take turns at full speed from what I, <laughs> from what I remember. But yeah, the coach, uh-huh. the coach threw me in a mile and he said, just keep, just kind of hold, hold behind the upperclassmen. Uh, Bracken, I don't know if you were at this meet. Uh, this was the very first meet of my, my freshman year. And I, I went out and I just ran on my own. Like when you're a kid, you don't really feel fatigue. You just kind of run at a pace. And, and with uh, two laps to go, I spotted an upperclassman on the team, uh, Mike, Mike Moore in Bracken. Uh, mm-hmm. who was a junior at the time. So over the, the final two laps, I kicked with all I had. Finally, around the last uh, corner, I caught him and I leaned him to the line. I kind of threw my fist up <laughs> and I mm-hmm. bent over to, to catch my breath and I looked up and he was still running. And I realized I'd, I'd miscounted my laps. My very first <laughs> So, so I, I, I tried to get moving again. Legs were, you know, uh, just sandbags. And finally by the back stretch, I got my, my feet moving again and I found my second wind and I kicked again and I caught him with about 15 meters to go and I leaned him to the line again. And I was just ecstatic. And my coach came up to me and he said, well, you ran a 527. Are you happy with that? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, that was great. And he said, uh, well, you ran too many laps. So, so it was actually, it was a 456, I think. That was my first race I ever ran. And it was, uh, what was that, 1780 meters for it. Uh, and that upperclassman did not speak to me for about two and a half months after that. Wait, was he, was he behind you and you were about to lap him? I lapped him, thinking- yeah. <laughs> he didn't miscount is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So, so that was, uh, that was 2004. Yes. You have a 17 year streak of sub five racing. It's not bad. Um, that's a really good time as a freshman in high school. And that was your opener on a track mm-hmm. that was very small. It's like, not like 11 laps to the mile or something. I believe that one is that day. It was, it's supposed to be 10. <laughs> <laughs> it's 10. Okay. Oh yeah. I guess it was 160 meter check. Um, what did you end up topping out at as a freshman in the mile? I'm curious. Cause now I want to see who, who got the juice. That was it. You peaked, you peaked early. Peaked first meet. I don't know. I, I didn't really understand it. My, my, well, what did you run Kirk? You, you had a quick first year, didn't you? I ran 447 as yeah, a freshman. That's, that's quick. Out. That's quick. I yeah. ran 527. <laughs> and Suck it. And that's I why I was one. pumped with that 527. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so Mac was pumped. He ran 527 that meet. He tied my freshman PR and realized he ran 160 meters longer than he was supposed to run. And we kind of realized like, oh, yeah, like those flashes of sprint skill may be translating into distance running. Yeah. Mm. So then my, my sophomore year, I kind of had some breakthroughs. Uh, and I think I ran 433 or 434, just every meet got a little quicker throughout the year, but I was still trying to follow in Bracken's footsteps and do the four sports. And in Wisconsin, you kind of have to do this awkward limbo in the spring where right around conference time, you go to baseball practice at night and like you do your track before that. Uh, so you're doing both. And I, you know, you're just sitting there on the bench. I was awful. So I'd sit there and occasionally they'd send me out to right field where you put your bad players. And I pulled my uh, or tore my hamstring running out to right field one day. So I never ran quicker uh, in high school. That that was really it. I rehabbed that the rest of the time. I I still ran, but I never I never really improved on it. And uh, it just it, it just uh, snowballed from there. And that's that's true, and it glosses some things. He had, he had flashes. He kept throwing flashes. He had a, a did you run one fifty nine in an eight, 
you won a couple of conference titles, several conference titles, cross country. I came home from college one time because I was coaching. I'd come back a couple times a week and coach, uh, assistant coach on the cross team when I was in college. Hmm. So I was, I'd run with the team a few times a week. And the first meet he came out and ran something like 1620 on a tough course against a good previous state qualifier. And he just battled the, and there were those flashes throughout the whole time, you know, 1620 something first or second year, first or second race of the year is fast. You no, know, those are flashes. And, but that, that's kind of what it was. It was flashes in between injuries. I remember watching, coming back from college and watching his outdoor conference meet his senior year. And he hadn't been running at all because he had his hamstring issue back. And he, you know, went out there and I think won a race, lost a race, but was doing it on one and a half legs. And we never really saw what could be in high school. I wasn't, I wasn't able to, yeah, I wasn't ever able to drop below 420 or any of that stuff. But I, I understood the mental game because my freshman year, like I said, Bracken had this massive uh, breakthrough where all of a sudden he went from, I would say you were second pack of, of guys to, to the leader. And he had this interesting mental game where, you know, Bracken, if, if you haven't seen Bracken run, he's a man, man among boys, right? He has a unique uh, body, these huge thighs, this slow, uh, but powerful turnover, kind of like, um, who was the great uh, New Zealand uh, double champion, Peter Snell. Um, and he always reminded me of that. And when he raced guys who were significantly faster than him, it was the most interesting thing. I remember watching this. Uh, Paul Moran, who was an All-American, 35 in the 10K, and a bunch of other guys you raced against, Kirk, um, they refused to pass him in races. And he could dictate from the start. He had something on them where they refused to push the pace. And he could dictate it, and he could sprint to the finish. So when I was 14, I was watching that, and I said, that's that's the way to do it. It's a game. Uh, you know, consistency beats volume. Yes, we all know that volume beats intensity, but speed kills. And if you walk around knowing that, it's it's something special. And Bracken had that. So I, I, I came up with that. So, yeah, I was still able to win the, like, you know, the conference meets every year and beat some guys who ran sub four and, and things like that. But I, I never ran a, I never ran a quick time. We were championship racers in high yeah. school. Yeah. We couldn't time trial, but we could chant. We could, we could beat anyone, not anyone. We could beat, we could punch a, a, a head of our weight in a championship tactical race, but we never popped a time. But that's, that's how I would describe you as a, as a gamer Bracken. And I guess it runs in the family. I remember back in 2017, my first year attempting the Spartan U.S. National Series, you came up and trained with me, Mike Ferguson and Mikhail Girillo for a weekend. Mm. I'll be honest, me and Mike Ferguson made you look like a little girl that day. Uh, we ran an eight-mile tempo on the horse trails. It was me nine. And Mike, nine, sorry. It was nine. Me and Mike Ferguson washed the floor with you and, and Mikhail that day. And then a month later in Seattle, I take 17th. You fail the rig and still take fifth. And Mike Ferguson was in third the entire race until he missed his spear. Point being is you were a gamer and you've done that. I've, we've, I've had workouts where I've beaten you. And then we go to Minnesota, uh, that sprint in the mountain series that year. And you were a hundred yards ahead of me. You show up Macaulay or crackers show up when it matters. They save it. And that's a much better thing than being a workout hero. In my opinion, I've just witnessed that firsthand is all I'm saying. 
Yeah, the the all American practice players tend to just go through life disappointed because every time that big day comes around, they're unable to, to get up for it. I don't think intentionally underachieving in practice is, is ideal either. Uh, there's a happy <laughs> medium there, but uh, there's certainly something to be said for that. You know, there's and there's there's no real metric for that. Not trying to get ahead of us here, but I've thought about this a lot over the years that. Uh, trying to figure out what exactly could, could measure what makes someone good at OCR. It's not wattage. It's not aerobic. It's not VO2 max. But, it, you know, when I think back on racing, I think of guys like Matt Novakovic, Isaiah Vidal, these guys. If I race them in a 5K, they mop the floor with me. If we do a CrossFit workout, it's even more embarrassing. But somehow you put us together in a stadium sprint or something like this, Oh, by the way, throw a throw an incline challenge in there, and they're two tenths, three tenths ahead. I don't think I ever got higher than one four in an incline challenge, but something happens, and I, I always wondered what exactly that was that allowed that middle ground to you know to be able to excel at. I think it's the ability to cross lactate threshold and somehow survive and get back into it and under it again, and like repeatedly jab your threshold and somehow being able to recover from that, which is like, how do you measure that? I guess with a very clean cut cookie cutter description, that's tough to do. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think some people have one lactate producer and other people have seven and one have to pull from the same spot every time they cross over and others get to like one's uphill, one's downhill, one's flat, one's exertion. I know that's not real, but it seems to be that way. I will say, speaking to what you said, and I will I will stand on this island forever, and that is there's a lot of talents people can possess, whether it's speed or aerobic capacity or just skill work specific to your sport. But there's one that trumps all, and that's the, that's the ability to stay injury-free. If you don't have that talent, there is a governor on your abilities. I feel like I've experienced that over the years. And so I'm just like hearing that over and over. Those guys that get injured all the time, they show flashes of talent. And it's always promise. And then the rug's always swept out in some regard, I feel like. So I, I, that's just my personal opinion. It sounds like you've lived that a little bit. I have. Yeah, I, I look at Kipchoge all the time. I don't think he is the best runner ever, but he's done 19 years of uh, quality aerobic work, unbroken. And that you, you can't supplant that. You know, guys like Bekele, his greatest rival, are always injured and out of shape and chubby, working back into it, rebuilding. And it's. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you left high school then, never having hit times that you would have wrote down on paper as your goals for what to do in high school. You hit the conference titles, you hit the state qualification. I think you qualified for state as a sophomore in the mile. Same kind of thing. There's you're a sophomore stepping up to the line, just outraced people and got to state, but you never got the times you wanted. So then you went off to lacrosse. And this is like the the time of life I don't know about because I was down at Campbell and then I went to Whitewater and I, I didn't see you probably for the first time in our life. I didn't know what was going on. Before we get too far, I want to mention that I hold a unique record in the state of Wisconsin. I believe mm -hmm. I was a last place finisher at state four times. Mile, 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 four by eight, maybe. Anyway, pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> You took last every time. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I got to ask the follow-up questions here then. Congratulations. Do you know, actually, I bet you I hold a record as well in the state of Wisconsin. I bet you I could, I bet you I'm going to try to one-up you here, which Bracken tried to do at the start of our last podcast. He's a habitual one-upper. 
one step or everything. My sophomore, junior, and senior year of college cross country or high school cross country, we ran on the same exact golf course for the championships. And I ran 1648 my sophomore year, 1648 my junior year, and 1648 my senior year. Three years in a row, the exact same time on the exact same course. I feel like that's some kind of record. That That is, especially when you think about what your second two miles were, because I know how people race at state. That was probably a 451 first mile or four, maybe even quicker. No, no it, was a, it, was a, it was a healthy sophomore year and then an injured junior and senior year. So I always came limping into state, but okay. nonetheless. Yeah. Anyways, yours is probably, you're probably still, that's more of a one upper stat than mine, but I, I feel like I can relate to a little bit now on that level. What were your times actually? Let's dive into that. What time got you in and what time did you run in state in those? Did you underperform or everybody just showed up? No, I always kicked in for for the last spot, basically. My sophomore year, I think I had a, like I said, I was mid 430s maybe, but I think only 437 made it. Bracken, I think, was at that race. It was pretty, pretty unique. Uh, yeah. 437 made state? Yeah. We, it, was a, it was a weird year. We all, this sectional that we were in, like once again, lots of talented guys, Many you would know, Kirk, like Spencer Agnew, Terry Witkowski, these guys who run the podcast now in Wisconsin, Marcus Paulson, who was sub four at Minneapolis. Uh, but we, we like to jog. I, I don't know what it was. So, yeah, we jogged for two and a half laps and then sprinted in, and I always just managed to kind of sneak in. So I think I made it, yeah, the high 430s. And then our, our mm-hmm. four by eight probably ran, we weren't under eight minutes. We were probably 801, I think. Um, but we had we had Eric Swinsky in our sectional, and I I almost caught him uh, in that uh, final leg, final turn. And I thought, for anyone who doesn't know, Eric Swinsky is the American record holder, former American record holder in six hundred. Uh, he's been racing overseas. I think he's ran sub one forty five thirty times or something crazy. Nice. I I thought we were on. Yeah, he did. Iowa or Iowa State. I thought we were Iowa. on the same uh, level after that race. So in the eight hundred, then. 45 minutes later, he came up to me before the race and he said, listen, we're all tired from the four by eight. Let's just jog out. Let's get out in 60 and, and just close it in. And, you know, we'll go to state together. And they got out in 52 and I, I took last place. <laughs> so after the race, he, he came up to me and said, hey, my, my coach came up to me and said, take it out hard. Uh, I don't care what you said to him. We don't want him going. <laughs> so that was uh, some pretty master uh, strategy on, on their part. But anyway, what I realized there is we were not on the same planet, and there's levels to this, uh, as, as I saw, because I think he ran 151 then or something wild. I went for one run with that guy one day back when I was in college, and he was finishing up his senior year of high school. He seemed like a nice kid, but now, now he's an asshole. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was rude. I watched him at a professional race out here in Europe uh, a couple weeks ago. I drove out uh to one of the diamond league races and and he was in it and i was i was booing him the the whole time as he came by jeering at him and cat calling yeah people don't forget <laughs> no no what surprised me about this conversation just a little few things you've referenced now is that um obviously like dedicating your life to racing has not become a priority but yet you really keep up on it still as like a fan, like you've mentioned all the big names, like people who don't like participate anymore necessarily don't know what you know. You've mentioned a lot of people. So you still keep up with everything. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I think I'm a bigger fan now than, than I ever was. And I try and make it out. Like I went to Kipchoge's uh, sub two hour uh, attempt in Vienna 
a year or two ago, and I try and get to the Diamond League races out in Europe. I love training, and I spend way more time than I should on the uh, the cesspool that is Let's Run uh, these days. So, yeah, no, I, I love training talk, and, and Bracken and I, I mean, we've spent hundreds of hours going over, you know, everything you guys you guys talk about. I will say that this is a further example of we are the same but different, opposite sides of the same coin, because from an early age, I realized I hated running and I loved competing and I could finagle my way into winning some races from time to time. And so I loved that. And Macaulay, early on, I would say had a passion for running, that he actually had a relationship with running that I never had probably until the last three to five years. Probably wasn't until I went out to Colorado that I started to love the act of running. And so I loved racing. He loved running and training. And I can't say that he ever, from the outside, appeared to love racing. When he was on, he could get as tough as anyone. But I don't think he enjoyed. I don't think he took any pleasure from that. And so it sometimes almost strikes me as unfair that I went 30, 31 years of my life without injury. And I didn't even love what I was doing. I was just doing it because I could find success. And here is the person that loved it and would give anything to go and just train bigger volume and bigger volume and bigger volume, but his body kept holding him back. Mm. Yeah, Kirk, I, I've you know I followed you guys over the years, and and I do wonder how you feel about this. If if you hit a point ever where you're just like, because I, I think he, from what I've seen from you, if you would get a light tissue massage, you might walk away with a stress fracture. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know when, like when the years pile up, like at, at some mm-hmm. point for me, it was after it was 16 years of, of, of 17 years of injuries where I finally said, like, there's no enjoyment in this anymore. There's no, it's just, it's, it's starting a process and stopping at the beginning and starting and stopping for years. And you never see the payoff. I don't know if you've, if you've struggled uh, with this at all. You know, I, that's a the way you pose that is very interesting. I think, The question for me that just I can't leave is like, how good can I be? And if I don't, even knowing my situation isn't ideal all the time being injured, if I don't fight and claw to pursue that, I don't want to be like on my deathbed later in life because I give I really give a shit about this. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that's why I keep fighting and clawing. And then for the other one, it would be it's such a part of my mental health routine. And like, just like bringing me back to homeostasis on a daily basis that even when I'm injured, like I still got to do something because I don't know anything else and I need it to keep me normal. Do you know what I'm saying? So I end up cross training hard and I'm like, wow, I'm in kind of good shape. I might as well start running again. I can. And then all of a sudden, you know, here I am racing again. So if that makes sense. No, it it, it does. Running, I mean, running for me, as Bracken stated, it's a deeply personal thing. I think it's more along the lines of what his wife, Lisa, uh, how, how she trains were for me. Um, there is a certain benefit I'm able to get from running. I hate to use the word flow state, but I don't mean it in a Richard Diaz sense. I mean like the original, like there's this guy who wrote a book in 93, uh, Saint Mihai. It was, it was about this optimal state of motivation where everything is internal, life's problems disappear, and uh, you're able to, to emerge from that uh, feeling refreshed. And I've, I've tried everything over the years i have tried literally every exercise on this planet (laughs) and never once have i ever gotten that that sort of meditative uh, feel from it it's an exorcism of of demons at the end of the day and and so when i when i mentioned being injured some of it i'll admit comes from the fact that running is not there for me to get better 
it's for me to maintain, you know, you know, status quo for me. And it, it's difficult. I'm sure Lisa struggles with this, with this as well, where, uh, people who, who don't look at running that way might, might look at you strange. Like you need to work out your, your antsy. This is not, this is not ideal. Why? But, uh, that is the, the stasis in, in your life. So it's deeply personal. It's a thing I love to do on my own. I don't think I've run with someone in, in years, like literally years outside of a couple of weeks ago, Brack and I went on a run or two. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't coincide with, with being a peak performer to add to that. Injury prevention is the, I'd say it's the admin work of the running world. Like you must do your paperwork. And I've noticed that, that later as I've moved away from running into the professional world, do you know what I'm not good at? It's, it's the admin work, you know? Mm-hmm. So these, these are themes that, that are, I think, present in life that are not solely related uh, to running. That's a good analogy because you can kind of hire out your admin work sometimes if you don't want to do the busy work. And that's going to the sports physio or going to the chiropractor or the massage therapist. I like that. I just think like if it's if it's for your homeostasis, much like mine, like for me, I need it to feel like complete. But then having that in the knowing you have a raw talent that if you could or wanted to could potentially pursue something at a high level, like that doesn't factor into any decisions you make when it comes to like your own personal fitness. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everyone, it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, when it comes, when it comes to the racing uh, side of things, I, I definitely agree with Bracken, how he said that, that that is not something that drives me. Although I do think I can be tough. I do think I can compete when it matters, but it, it's, it's not the thing I live for. You know, uh, not to get too far off track here, but everyone has an opinion on Isaiah Vidal. Okay, whatever. But over time, I've grown to respect him more and more and more for a strange reason. The same reason I respect Conor McGregor, even though he's a complete D-bag in every sense of, of the word. These guys are able to not be realists. They are able to think outside of the box. They are able to convince themselves that this is life or death that there's nothing else in this world that matters and they're ready to bite someone's ear off. Like Isaiah will fight. He will fight in a race. You know how I used to enter a race? Oh, like training's been good. I don't care about this race. This doesn't matter. What, what does it matter? You know, and if being a realist or, or, or a pessimist, whatever you want to call it is, is, is a harmful behavior for, I think for an elite level athlete. And I've always Isaiah woke something in me when I entered OCR that I never had before, where I would be on the treadmill. And instead of doing things for that stasis we talked about, I was thinking about wrecking him. And I would get psyched for the first time in my life. And I'd be full of energy and I'd be hammering repeats. And he must go through life like that. Every day is a battle. Every day is a war. That's really unique. I think it destroys your life if you live that way. I can't imagine how Oh, whatever, whatever. I won't get into any, any critique on, I think I've learned a lot from him about uh, putting, stopping being a realist and just uh, treating things like that. Well, you were the first person to ever make me start to grasp the idea that your talent is not necessarily your passion and everyone else sees talent and they think if I just had that, why can't you just, and you were the first person to ever talk to me about it, that I'm tired of these people coming up to me and saying, Hey, I think you could be really good at this. Why would you ever stop? Like, I just don't like it. 
I don't enjoy it. I can't help the fact that I was given the ability to do this at a higher level than a lot of the people next to me. I don't want to do it. I wouldn't make you do something that you detest. Why do you all want me to do something? And I'd never really heard that before. And I'd always thought that too. So this is that OCR brings it out because OCR is the nastiest part of all racing combined because there is no sitting comfortably. The moment you hit the first difficult climb or obstacle, it's it's you're like Chris Brown said, it doesn't matter if you go 80% or hundred. Once you hit the first gauntlet, you're in misery for the rest of the race. And so it's a too, it's too miserable of a race to do without passion for it. And it took me a long time to realize that you didn't have the passion for it. I run every run of my life thinking about the next race and you run every run of your life, living life right there on that run. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting way to put it. You know, I've always described it as like all we can ask for in life is that we develop a unique passion, something that sustains us and feeds us. You hope that your aptitude falls into line. What I happened to discover was that these two were on opposite sides. And, and honestly, not to, once again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this creates a, a really unique, uh, difficult, mentally taxing world to live in. And it wasn't, it wasn't just me. And I don't think I was anything special. I, I really don't. I think there's a thousand guys who could have come over and, and done more. But um, you, you hear stories about this all the time, like Larry Sanders. Uh, Kirk, I don't know if you follow uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota sports or basketball or anything, but Larry Sanders was like the future of the Milwaukee Bucks as a rim protector. And he had a brutal coach and he was unhappy and he hated the game and he walked away. For years, he's just been like crucified online. They gave him a hundred million dollar contract and he quit. Vontae Davis, I think that was Vernon Davis's brother, the 49ers player. He walked off the field at halftime uh, his final year, took his helmet off, told his teammates he was gone and he left. And once again, these people, they they really take a lot of critique from from the average Joe who who believes that. Uh, that pinnacle is is the only pinnacle that exists, that there's nothing higher. And uh, they, they say traditionally, and I got some of this when I walked away, uh, how could you possibly do such a thing? You're, you're a fool. They're, they're kind of puzzled by you. This is all that matters in, in this world. You know, what, what wouldn't I do for, for that? I'm saying for the football players, not for myself. But money is not happiness, and, and Instagram likes are not happiness. Kirk, you've, you've ridden that uh, roller coaster. You've seen what that adoration feels like, right? And a level higher than any of us. This is not sustainable. I've mentioned earlier that hedonistic treadmill. Like if you hop on board, there, there's no getting off, right? You've seen your mm-hmm. reality show co-stars who just keep chasing it. Um, so, so that's a long way of saying uh, that <laughs> it wasn't for me. I also want to say, and this might sound defeatist, but sometimes an optimistic maybe is better in terms of hindsight for the psyche than a firm no. Uh, if that makes sense. And to quote, uh, there's a there's a poem I like, E. Housemith's To an Athlete Dying Young, which people should definitely look up. Uh, Smart lad to slip betimes away from fields where glory does not stay. Call me Uncle Rico, if you will. But I, <laughs> I think I got what I needed. And the time is the ultimate optimist. And, and you know, I don't, you mentioned always wondering what could have been on your deathbed. And, and I saw what it would take to get there. And I saw where I was. And, and that was a that was a comforting uh, feeling for me, I guess. First of all, this is the good stuff. We don't need to rush past any of this to get to your storyline. This is kind of what we do here. You listen, right? 
I think the the interesting thing, the the differentiation between people leaving sport is like if you compete and you realize you're good and you have success and you, then you be, it becomes your identity and then you don't know any different. It's like waking up and brushing your teeth and then having to step back and say like, well, now what? Right. And usually you develop a love for the things you're good at. And obviously you saw glimmers of that as well. So like what about it wasn't fulfilling for you as far as competition? Why did it, why was it not enough? I don't know if that's the right way to describe it. Maybe that's like, why was it not enough? I guess is what I'm asking. It was, it was enough. It was, I, I think, I think okay. we, we all go through life seeing people at a certain tier. And most of us, I think are realists enough to take that point where we realize, like in our professional career, as Brack and I spoke about in grade school, you see, Oh, those people have something special. I don't have. And you, there comes a time in life, I think it's like 13 to 17 or something, where you realize you won't be anything special for the most part. Those professional dreams are, are nothing more than that Lamborghini poster on the wall, to use your, uh, your car metaphors, is, is nothing more. <laughs> and my, my point is, I had believed it up to that point. But then I got a taste of it and I realized, oh, that was great. But but I was satiated. Like I, I had finally I had hit that thing. I had discovered that thing, and and now it was time to to move on. I don't see many people. I see people in running move on. I don't see people in in OCR move on too often, which is which is interesting to me. They stay in that in that tight knit uh, industry. But but to get to your point, um, I I used to talk about oh I got what I got out of the sport. It was great. In reality, it was something entirely different and. Uh, Bracken, do you recall what I said to you after the first race we ever ran? I don't. Okay, well, you you brought me out to Illinois, and I don't know what year that was, 2012 or 2013, and we, we ran, and it was brutally cold. I cramped two miles in, by the way, and there were no hills. Uh, <laughs> had a bit of a belly back then, but I said to you after, that was the worst thing I've ever done, and I'll never do it again. And I think everyone gets these thoughts during races, but the interesting thing for me was it never left. A paycheck, a big uh, cardboard check did nothing to, to stunt what I had felt. And I always remember that. Listen, this isn't, this isn't you. And, uh, and I think a lot of people forget. Forget those demons they had to face on the, on the course. I used to see people sitting out on the side of the course uh, during the open waves. I'd watch, you know, and having a rough time, not wearing the right clothes. It's all sucked them in the mud, maybe crying, you know, whatever it was. And I always thought, what do they do after the race? It's probably a good Instagram photo flexing, you know, hashtag crushed it. But I was never able to get to that point. <laughs> you know, I, I, I recalled, oh, that, that wasn't enjoyable. I, I won't do that again. Uh, the nothing, nothing that came afterwards uh, mattered, I guess. So anyway, the point is, I, I got what I got out of it. We shouldn't beat a, a dead horse, I guess, on that, on that front. But I've, I haven't met someone who feels the same way as me. So it, it's, it's always this awkward conversation with OCR people where you get these strange uh, side glances from them that, that something must be wrong here. There must be more uh, to the story. I'm satisfied with that answer. Very much so. I think the thing, by the way, I'll just touch on something you said about like, you don't see people come into OCR and leave very often other than like the quintessential runner who comes in and gets their butt kicked and says, well, why would I do this when I'm good at this other thing? 
is that people find their second lease in, mm-hmm. in like OCR. And so they've been searching, whereas you weren't searching, you were sort of like not forced because you weren't forced, but it was more handed to you by example with Bracken. Whereas I think when people find OCR, it's, you know, if you look at the, the numbers of participants, I bet you 50% of the participants are 40 and older, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe 45 and older. And the rest, you know, you look at the younger demographic. So I just think it's a, it's a second lease for most people or athletes. Whereas for you, it, you came up early like Bracken did with maybe some sort of focus and you realize that you didn't get out of it what you wanted. So I think it's a little different that way, if that makes sense. We left college both unfulfilled for different reasons. I was unfulfilled because I realized I see my ceiling as a runner. I can't get much faster. I can move up in distance and get better at those distances because I haven't explored that side yet, but I'm just not going to run a sub four minute mile. I thought I could just keep improving until I got there, but I saw my ceiling and it wasn't much under 410. And I saw my ceiling in the 800 and I wasn't breaking 150, Mm -hmm. probably wasn't breaking 151. And so I, I realized I I just have limiters and OCR was a second lease on life. I always thought if I could just do more things during a race, then I could keep racing. But I don't think Macaulay came up feeling that way. I think you left running, feeling unfulfilled by running and OCR didn't fill your glass because it's not pure running and you love running and OCR wasn't that. It, it is a sport of rebirth, uh, Kirk. And it it was for me, it actually was. Mm. And, uh, so, so yeah, I don't, we can get, we can certainly get into that. And I apologize to anyone who's sick of college running talk who might be listening, who's about to get this again, but, but just, just to, uh, to give an excuse and to explain why this comes up time and time again, for, if someone hasn't run in college, I just want them to imagine someone coming up to them and offering, listen, I will give you a five-year training camp. You'll get to train with the best runners on the planet. You'll get unlimited food. You'll get unlimited trainers. You will live, eat, and sleep just running. You'll live with them for five straight years. You will only eat and breathe this single thing. Oh, and by the way, we'll give you a college degree, probably. And uh, like, what would that? What would that cost for most people? And, and you know, that's that's uh, let's say let's say that's one hundred fifty thousand bucks. I don't know, six grand a month, maybe more. And we all got to do that. And this is a really unique experience. So anyway, that, that's my caution to anyone who thinks uh, we're living in the past. We are, but it was, it was a very unique uh, proving grounds. But uh, yeah, to, 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 get, to get to the college. So I, I showed up there and it was kind of, it was, it was doomed from day one. I graduated high school and I took a job with the city of West Dallas, uh, where Bracken and I grew up. And they mentioned to me that they would give me a bonus a uh, pretty significant bonus if I worked third shift that summer. So I took I took the third shift job, and what that job was was painting the highway city lines. So uh, what I would do is I would sit in a truck all night long from ten to seven, and I would drive two and a half miles per hour down the middle of the highway. And the machine the machine would be out back behind me, and it would be spitting uh, three and a half foot sections of paint onto the ground and a glistening agent over it. I don't, I don't recall what and it would beep to keep you on course. And I was such a wreck as a young kid, just going through puberty, training for the first time in my life, learning about tempo runs, uh, that I would fall asleep every two to three minutes for the entire night. And the beeping of the line, it would start to go off track. 
and then the beep would wake me up and I'd, I'd start driving straight again. So anyway, if you're ever going down a highway and you see these lines turning, it was probably some, some kid like me, you know, who, who was falling asleep <laughs> at the wheel. But so I, I decided to go to lacrosse. Bracken had been there. Uh, they had, you know, uh, an incredible program. Did you, by the way, not to, not to interrupt, uh, but did you make it the whole summer with that job and that schedule? <laughs> I um, I worked a swing shift job in college before my sophomore year, and it was 12-hour paper mill swing shifts. So I'd work two, more, two days and then two nights, and uh, I quit that shit after two weeks. I couldn't do it, so hats off to you. You get to about 2, 3 a.m., and you are, like, cross-eyed tired, and you can't even spell your own name. So I, I quit. So I, my hat's off to you is what I'm, I'm saying. What you, nice job. What you were doing was more difficult because you were switching back and forth. Um, but yeah. And then, I don't care. I, 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 I wasn't able to do it even if it was nights every night. Yeah. So And then you're ready to go to bed, but the sun comes up. So there's no sleeping. But uh, so I, I decided I would go to lacrosse, which is a little school nestled in the bluffs up the Mississippi River. Bracken had been there uh, when he was chasing baseball, I think. Uh, Kirk, I'm sure you're familiar with with the school, but they were they were creating a program that could challenge a lot of D1 programs at the time, which was unique for D3. And um, basically, their strategy there was throw a bunch of eggs at the wall, whichever ones don't break, you know, succeed. And those guys would turn out to be all Americans. So they threw that at me, but I had never really run much more than 20, 25 miles a week. I was injured, so that summer I was trying to get up to 65 or whatever while working third shift. So I would sleep. I would get home from work, maybe 7.30. I would sleep sometimes till 8 or 9 at night. I would go for a 45-minute run, and I would hammer it, try and get my workout in. I would go to work, and I'd fall asleep the entire night. So I showed up to college just wrecked. And then we had our Pigeon Lake, this training camp, two weeks where you get after it. They put you through the ringer, you know, like endless tempo runs until guys fall off. And come tryouts, uh, I was cut from the team. I didn't make the team. And I thought I thought I was going to college to be a cross-country runner because I was better at cross-country than, than track, in my opinion. And then track came around, and I got cut from the track team. Uh, they, had a, they had a qualifying that was based off of provisional qualifying for NCAs. You had to run 88% of that time or something, which was really slow. And if you did that three times, it was three-strike policy, you were gone off the team. And I ran, I ran 445 twice and I couldn't break two in the 800. And then I split at the conference meet, the conference championship, I split 54, 55 in the quarter mile in the four by four and the whole field went by me. So after, and then I tore my quad, this was all indoors. So Don Fritch, the wonderful uh, Wisconsin hall of fame coach pulled me into his office and he said, listen, you're never going to run for me again. I like you, but there's nothing we can do. You're, you can't run an 800. But I believed in myself. I kept training, came back the next year, cut 25 seconds off my mile, cut seven seconds off my half mile. And Bracken and I actually, uh, he was at Whitewater at the time competing. We ran against each other at the national championships, which was a a pretty cool year. So I went from cut from the team to to All-American in about, uh, I think, nine months. What was missing that first go around? Just... uh, just stress around the clock and then the college lifestyle, you know, lacrosse was, they were wild there. They were on NCAA probation while I was there and the hazing and just that lifestyle was ridiculous. So you were out every night, you were training hard for the first time ever. And you know, these things don't, don't, don't fall into line. And uh, yeah, so it didn't work out too well for me that freshman year, sophomore year, I was finally getting into it, but that was just one year of training. So 
going into my junior year, I kind of sat down and I looked at my strengths and weaknesses and I realized I wasn't fast, but I, I could, I could split, you know, low one fifties, even though I only had a 53 second quarter mile PR. So I figured if I could cut my, my, my speed down, really become efficient, I could drop under 150. So that, that summer, and I, I remember I'd been injured my whole life to this point, I've lost every season. Uh, I decided I was going to try a new style of training, which I explained it to Bracken and he said it better than me. What did you say, Bracken? It was uh, high volume, low mileage or something like that. Um, yeah. So what I did is I got up right around 65 miles a week, but I was doing it in four days of running. Uh, so I would do two or three days in between of, of complete rest or just pure speed work. And I knew I couldn't run with the team or I would get injured. I couldn't do cross country or I would get injured because they just worked. Can you explain that? Can you explain that weekly setup just a little more like what that would look like? Yeah, that was nine to 17 miles each, each run. And the runs were all, the mileage was all quality for the most part. I had one easy day, but like the 17 miler, that was a, a cut down. So it was marathon pace towards the end. Uh, and then some of the, the nine milers, you might have three miles of 30, 30 work uh, throughout that at varying intensities. The other workouts we would do with that would. Sorry, just to clarify. So like maybe you'd only run three days that week, but every single one of those runs would have a quality component to it. Mm-hmm. And every single one of those would be nine miles or more, mm-hmm. which, which on paper was not smart. Sounds like the credit to win. There we go. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like what I do when I'm except I fill the gaps with cross training, but continue. Yeah. And then the, the only other workout I did with that was uh, 25 by 400 at 5k with a hundred meter jog in between. Uh, so, so everything was just really solid. So I, I learned how to, for the first time in my life, be a distance runner, lost some weight, got, got fast. And then the coach said, listen, you, you can't run for our team if you don't run cross country. That was their rule for their mid D guys. So he said, you, you can, even though I had just, uh, you know, had a great year, he said, you're off the team if you don't join uh, the team. You'd split 152 at nationals as a sophomore. He'd spent the summer building up volume and they said, you can't run 800s the half mile for our team unless you run cross country in the fall. So that was, that was the line in the sand. Yeah. So I thought outside of the box and I decided I need to fix my speed anyway. So I became a sprinter. Uh, so I joined the sprint team and I trained with the 100, 200 meter guys uh, the whole fall. But I had this massive, massive base that I had built and I was still running this mileage. Uh, and it just, something happened. I had, I had that first real breakthrough that miles of trials led to that incredible, incredible, you know, breakthrough where all of a sudden you feel, I used to run to class and every ligament and tendon in my body just felt great. I would sprint up the stairs rather than taking the elevator. I would think to myself, you're, you're the fittest person on the planet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything, everything felt so good. And I was really excited for track. I, I figured I would break if I could 150, the first, the first indoor meet, we had a little, um, a little co-ed meet at lacrosse each year where it's just the 800 guys run a 3k, the 3k guys run a 800, you know, and there's no real timing or anything. Um, and I decided I would just hammer it and, and see if I could, you know, break the school record at lacrosse. What you do before you, before your race is there's a three mile jog, there's a mile and a half out to the Mississippi and there's a large bronze Eagle statue that looks over the, the Mississippi there. You pay your respects to the Eagle and you tell them what you're about to run. You turn around, you run back to the, and you race. I told the Eagle I was about to break 150. I turned around <laughs> and I blew up my knee and I never raced again. I don't like that. 
That was it for uh, for college. I wasn't expecting that button hook there. You button hooked me there, Macaulay. What do you make of that, Bracken? What do you make of this? You know it all already. I don't even know. Like, yeah. What do you do with it that? It gets me every time because I get caught up in his training story that he's been running oh. quality volume all summer. Then he transitioned to a whole fall of running with the 100, 200, 400 guys. And so now you paired foot speed to that. Now suddenly he's a sub 50 guy for the first time in his life. And he'd already won, run 152 high off of 53 second quarter speed. Now he's cut three, four, five seconds off that. And you can't wait to see what's going to happen. And we never find out. And this is, this is kind of uh, glossing over a lot. He had missed meets due to back spasms, due to hamstring pulls. Like there was, this was not the first like breakdown in the chain. This was the culmination of, didn't you miss a, you warmed up for a race a year prior and your back cramped right before it. And you had a back spasm and couldn't race. And like, th- this was a, there was a litany of events. Yeah. And nationals the year before you had to, I laid down to stretch before the race and you had to come over. I had to call for help and you had to get me off the ground right before the race. Cause I, I couldn't get up. Yeah, man. I, I, my burning question with all of this is when you ran out to this Eagle and you told this Eagle, what were you about to do? Did you then go back other than this circumstance? Did you go back and do what you told the Eagle you were going to do? In the past, typically I was never, in the past. I was never really good before that. Uh, so I, no, I never accomplished anything. Uh, and, and to, 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 to make this even worse, I was prone to occasional uh, bloody noses back then. And it was about, it was probably negative five out. And right when I blew out my knee, about 10 seconds later, I got a gushing uh, bloody nose. And I, I walked back to the field house and I walked in while my race was going. And you, we this really nice uh, plush white lacrosse jacket I'd wanted all these years. And I finally got it, you know, for being on the team. And I think the national team got it. I was just coating my whole face with blood, the jacket with blood. And, and uh, yeah. But what did you do to blow out your knee? So what it ended up being was uh, kind of a strange thing. I had—I don't know how much this had to do with my ostrich slaughters, but I had an extra fold of cartilage in that knee. They called this a plica, and it got caught between two joints, uh, and it just it locked the whole knee up. Uh, so I had, I had two options at that point. I could have undergone surgery and maybe been back, or I could have waited for the swelling to go down. We had two guys on our team, Paul Zadroik, who I think you raced against, Kirk. Um, mm-hmm. And another guy who uh, had had this surgery twice. And I decided, you know, with that uh, recurrence rate, it wasn't worth it. So I waited for the swelling to go down. In that amount of time, life took me in a, a very different direction. And uh, yeah, no, no longer was there running. I feel a little heartbroken. I don't know why. When you say like the shoulda, woulda, never had been a couple of tough draws, man. I mean, really, obviously you took advantage of them and went a different direction and life is great. So it's not like a pity story. It's just like a damn, like give this dude, cut this dude break once in a while. Is that accurate, Bracken? Yeah. Yeah. And Macaulay hit then at the age of what, 19? Hmm. At the age of 19 or 20, he hit the, uh, I'm getting done with athletics at 35 and retiring and have no idea what to do with my life. He hit that at 19. And then embarked on finding himself at 19 because all he had was running up until that point. And that's a, that's an oversimplification. That's not all you had, but that was the main focus of your life for so long. 
So at 19, you're done with running before you've even gotten started. And I think the next part is probably the most unique part of your story. Yeah, with with uh, with running out of the way, I kind of I, I just spiraled, uh, and and it was a strange thing because I I realized that uh, I had no passions in life, I had no talents, I, I had nothing, uh, and uh, with with running gone, I I didn't want to be in school, so I dropped out of school, but I didn't want to join the real world, uh, so I tried jobs, but I realized very quickly that I, I couldn't even hold so much as a as a normal job. I uh, I took a job at a, a hot dog factory in Lacrosse, and uh, I was there for two days. The foreman lost the tip of his finger in the hot dog machine, and they decided not to look for it. And uh, I stopped eating hot dogs after that day. <laughs> and uh, and then I I was a promotional guide, walk around handing out coasters to all the bars there, and I, I worked on a 150 foot uh, paddle boat, uh, uh, you know, the classic Mississippi paddle boat there giving tours as it went up and down the Mississippi. And I joined the group of the X runners who basically just lived at the bars. And and I just did that on and on until, you know, I was broke and uh, I didn't have anywhere to stay. And I I bought a tent and I uh, moved out to an island on the, on the Mississippi. uh, And uh, I would just canoe out there every night and, uh, and then someone stole my, stole my tent and, and my canoe, uh, and, and things, you know, I was, as Kendrick Lamar would say, I was, I was circling the drain. I was quickly going downhill in life and, and just, you know, just aimless in, in general. It wasn't a good, uh, couple years there. Obviously I, I wasn't running or, or doing anything related to that either at, at that point. Did, did your, did your parents bracken everybody knew what you were up to or were you, like I'm in school, don't worry about it. I, I'm fine. Really, you're sleeping on a tent in a tent on an island. Like, did people know about this sort of interesting thing you're doing? I think they they knew that I wasn't on the right path. They knew that I was in and out of college. They they knew that I was aimless because I was always honest. Uh, but mm. uh, I don't know the extent to to what they knew what I was doing. Well, your mom listens to this podcast, doesn't she? No worries. Here, here's. The thing everyone needs to understand is that Macaulay always had a version of it. It's not the classic, you walk into a room and own the room it, but the kind of it where everyone always recognized he was going to do something. I can sense that from talking to you, by the way, but continue. And he always had, it it was called just like the Macaulay. Like, yo, that's Macaulay. He's just doing it the Macaulay way. He had a different way of seeing things, thinking about things and moving his way through situations and life. And as a little kid, he dressed different than everyone else. And he didn't care. And he talked differently. And he played sports differently. He just had a different way through everything. But we all knew. And we it, we we verbalized it that when he figures it out or finds whatever his way is that applies to his passion, like he's going to be very successful. And we knew that. And so when we got to this point, we didn't know the extent of his injuries. We didn't know the extent of what was going on with running. But we heard Macaulay's now. Hey, I'm going to live in a tent. I'm going to I'm going to canoe out to this island and live on a tent and do that. It was like, well, yeah, of, well, of course. Because you're going to try that way now. And we didn't know what had led to it or what it was leading to. We just saw this is another example of Macaulay doing things his own way. And he's going to come out the other side, either with some fantastic story or it's going to push him towards the next thing he does. So we looked at it with a, at least me, I looked at it with humor. I thought that's kind of the most Macaulay thing you could do at this point. 
but I, I guess I don't know my parents how much they saw if there was struggle or lost years going on, but I didn't realize it. Yeah. Well, the, there was one time Bracken came up to visit me in, in, in lacrosse. And, and I remember we had gone out that night and we were sitting in the living room at the end of the night, we were talking and I looked over at him and I caught him looking at me out of the corner of his eye with this, it was this strange look I'd never seen before. We'd always been very close, but over the last two or three years, we kind of spread out. And it was like, I remember just all of a sudden thinking, he's, he's confused. He doesn't, he's not happy with me. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Something has changed between us. And that was my first time really starting to look and think, am I, am I, am I doing the right thing at this moment? That moment, I think you misunderstood the, the look a bit, but that, that weekend I came up to watch you try out for the cross country team. And I was graduated at this point, right? Mm -hmm. I think Lisa and I had bought a house, moved in together. We were, we were to get married that summer. And I went up there and it was just the classic college shithole, but, but worse. And there were three people or two people living in the basement. And it was just, I thought, I remember living in places like this, but I did it as a sophomore. And then you went out for the team and you dropped out partway through the tryout race. And I just had like this depressed feeling that... The, all these years, I've looked at you as the kid who needs no input because he doesn't want input and he's got it all figured out. And I realized I wasted the last three years, only a couple hours away from you, competing in the same conference as you, not doing any big brotherly work one bit. And I just realized we are not on the same page here in terms of what we're doing or why. And I had no clue. And I just realized it all in one weekend. And so that look was like a shoot. I wonder if, if I just should have been more present mm -hmm. and not, I wonder, I definitely should have been more present because in reality, we should have gone off to the same college and run on the same team and lived in the same house. And that clearly wasn't what we should have done because you needed to get out and do your own thing. But I feel like we didn't split the, the middle. Like we were just two different people and we really didn't communicate much in college, which is strange because we'd spent our whole life as a unit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always described it as, as you were very clear and cognizant and cerebral of, of the path that you should take through life. And each turn along the way, I was like, oh, what's that over there? I'll, I'll take a look over there for a little while. And, and uh, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing to hear. Uh, and that room, if you recall, we had a broken window and the water cups would freeze during the night. You'd end up with, with, with ice when you woke up in the morning. Yeah, that was a, that was a shit hole. So anyway, I did that for a couple of years, Kirk. I just, I just crashed couch to couch and, and was aimless and was in and out of school and just uh, generally just becoming unhealthier by the moment. Over time, my body changed from a runner to more, to maybe more pear-like is, is the, is the uh, description I would give it. Uh, and you, weren't, you weren't running or working out in that time? No, I, I, I did nothing. I, I did one random marathon. I jumped in with a friend. Uh, but that was my only running for that, maybe for that, uh, six months or so. Um, okay. and yeah, it just, it just kept going downhill and it, it's weird. I, I, I wasn't sure if I should talk about this on the podcast because, and I told Bracken this because you ha you seem to have an audience who has their stuff together, like, you know, like hyper successful, but the people you talk to, the comments you get, this type of thing. And, and I was just a waste of, of life. I was that person who was going to slip through the cracks, end up back home in their town, working the, you know, the factory job, not that there's anything wrong with that, but struggling to hold the job at, at 35, 40, that that's the route I was going at. And, uh, 
And so it, it's strange to say that, especially with where I am now. You know, you know, I, I was talking to Jerry Springer one time. <laughs> uh, um, Casually <laughs> pick that name up off the ground that I dropped. Okay. I was talking to Jerry Springer one time. I, uh, I was a host on the CW network here in the Twin Cities for a year, about two years. And Jerry was in the studio hanging out with us. And he told me, I was like, Jerry, come on, cut the shit, man. This is off camera. I was like, where do you get these people, right? Like, where do you get these people? And he goes, he looked me dead in the eye and he said, Kirk, I swear on my life that these people are for real. These stories are for real. And he said, I guarantee you that if I brought you on the show, there's enough of a skeleton in one of your closets to make you worth coming on this damn show. He's like, I could figure it out because we all have them. So just because those people, and Jerry Springer, by the way, is the man, in case anybody's wondering, very nice guy. But point being is all these success stories on our podcast, we're only talking about their successes. We're not talking about their skeletons that would get them on Jerry Springer. So we can't hold everybody on a pedestal that we've had on our podcast before. Bracken, can you one-up that? No, I never, I, I can't, I don't have a story where like someone lost the tip at the sausage factory or anything. I, I can't touch that. I'm getting a reputation as a one effort and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Could, so, yeah. Not to interrupt that you were going somewhere with that, that slipping through the cracks. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess that was basically it and things just kept, kept going downhill. And then, uh, New Year's Eve of, uh, I think it was 2013. I was, I was out just doing the usual in lacrosse. And at the end of the night, I decided to run home from the bars because of course there's nothing more enjoyable in this world than running while buzzed in, in my opinion. And, uh, I crossed uh, the street and there was a car coming behind me. So I hurtled onto the curb and it was all ice. So I landed and I just took off sliding. Uh, there was a no parking pole in front of me and my right shoulder hit it. It flipped me backwards. And with my momentum, I went backwards onto my back. And then the last thing I remember is the back of my head uh, connecting with the, the pavement. Um, so I woke up sometime later. I was laying in a pool of my blood. I, could, I couldn't move my legs or my arms. There was paramedics there. Woke up another maybe nine hours later, I was wandering through the back of this, this hospital, uh, through the, the workers corridors. Uh, I had marks on my hands where it looked like I had been restrained my phone and my wallet were missing. And that was the start to, I believe my 2013. Uh, so I, I came back from the, from the hospital and I had done serious damage to my head. I was stapled all and stitched all the way from the be- nape of my neck to the top of my head. And I didn't leave. I proceeded not to leave uh, the room where I was crashing for, for weeks. I don't know, maybe a month and a half. And at all times I had these splitting headaches, these migraines. I couldn't have the lights on. Anything so much as just a single like math problem would have brought on migraines that were just ear splitting. And and I couldn't sleep either because I was getting these awful night terrors after I fell. This was something new to me. And this continued probably for six weeks. At the time, all I had was a book from my Russian literature class from a previous class I had dropped out of. Uh, it was Dostoevsky's uh, uh, Crime and Punishment. And it's a story about a college kid who has high hopes and he kind of slips through the cracks and, and falls into madness. And, and nonetheless, uh, of course, I could relate. So that was that was the new me at, at that moment, and and at that point, maybe with the fall, something had happened. But all of these this realization came through to me, like this this wall broke, and, and overnight I realized who I was. I got a very clear image 
of what had happened to me, where I was, my lacks, my, you know, like to that point, I had no personality. I had no skills. I wasn't able to get through college. It was impossible. I dropped out three times when people were in the room with me speaking politics and things like this. I had to sit in the corner quietly. I couldn't relate. I had massive uh, self-confidence issues and crippling uh, anxiety that were only relieved by a beer or two, but the beer got me into more trouble than it, than it helped. And these things just kept rushing in as I laid there, you know, thinking of what had happened to me over the last three years, coming in four years earlier, thinking I'd be a physical therapist, doing something good to my, with my life, now being that guy on the couch that you, you probably want to leave. So that was, that was depressing as hell and in a really difficult time. And one night I remember I had fallen asleep just for a few minutes, but the night terrors woke me up out of these strange dreams I would get. And I had a missed call from Bracken. And uh, he said to me, listen, Lisa and I and Brayden, who had just been born uh, maybe six months earlier, I, I can't remember entirely. Uh, maybe it was earlier. Anyway, we're going to Hawaii. We have a family vacation out in Hawaii. And we'd love it if you would come with us. There's only one stipulation there's a race, an athletic event on the final day we'll be in Hawaii. So I'll pay for your entire trip. I'll pay for everything. Just do this race with me on the final day. So I, of course, like what, what could I say? Of course, I said yes. And I got out of bed for the first time in maybe six weeks and uh, threw on some running shoes and went for a walk outside. For the first time I felt, you know, my head clearing just a little bit. I felt the faintest uh, bit of hope. And uh, six weeks later, Bracken and I took first and second at Hawaii stadium sprint at Aloha stadium. And right after that race, uh, a fit, uh, youthful looking Asian man came up to me. His name was Daniel Liu. And he said, listen, I'm starting the first uh, professional racing team in the sport. I want you to come and join my team and be a professional runner. And a week later, he had bought me a flight out to, to Colorado. And uh, that was my new life. Jeez. Sounds fake. <laughs> why did you? I guess my curiosity initially, before we get into that, Bracken, is why did you make that phone? Or why did you make that phone call? Why did you? Why did you say Macaulay? Come on out. It needed to happen. You knew this. I did. I didn't know the extent. I knew that he wasn't in school. I knew that he was the closest thing to like a male soulmate I'd ever <laughs> seen in this world. And I missed that. That, that hurts my feelings. That hurts my feelings. <laughs> well, at, at the time, Kirk. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm I joking. knew that he would be good at this. And I knew that success breeds success. And I knew that I didn't know. Again, I didn't know any of this other side of it. I, di I didn't know he was sitting in bed. I didn't know he had gotten injured. I didn't know he had dropped out three times. I, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that it wasn't our interactions, our, our few text messages, our weird late night Facebook messages or posts. Like it wasn't the same. And I just thought two weeks in Hawaii, he's going to see Hawaii. He's going to, no one dislikes Hawaii. And then you're going to run a race and it's not going to be a stacked field. And it was a Navy federal credit union race that year, which means it was 3000, 2000, 1000 for the podium spots. Like we're going to make some money and he's going to get a little taste of what I'm doing. And Everyone who gets a taste of OCR is is intrigued. 
So I just, that was, that was as far as I thought. I didn't know any of the other stuff. I just thought I want to do this with my brother and I know he's not in the place I thought he was going to be in and we can do this together. Two weeks in Hawaii, it's going to be fantastic. That makes sense. I had no clue of the other part. Mm, that's brotherly intuition is what that is. So I told him what I was doing for training. I don't remember if I sent him a plan or not. I know that he trained some amount. And we got out there and it wasn't a big field, but uh, Alexander Nicholas was there who at the time was not in his mid forties. <laughs> he was <laughs> about as ripped of a human being as you've ever seen. And he was fit. And uh, Miguel Medina was there and I'm forgetting who else. There were some names that Miguel's still making podiums at ultras these days. Yeah, Joey was out there. Joey Petrolia. That's another name from the past. So there was a decent enough field that we had to work hard and I was very fit. And so we just ran the race together. And then what happened? They had a football throw then. At football stadiums, you had their spear throw and a football throw. You had to take a little toy foam football and throw it into a bucket. (laughs) And if you missed, it was like missing a spear. It was 30 burpees. And Macaulay missed along with like the entire field except two people. (laughs) And so suddenly like he's got the full OCR experience. Oh, shoot. Uh, money's now off the table. I'm feeling miserable. And I got to watch him get it back together and run us back down. And we ended up, uh, he caught back up and I, I did my best to slow the race up front (laughs) and he caught back up and we ran away and we took first and second. And it was like, we crossed the finish line. It was the first race we'd crossed together since probably my sophomore year of college when we did that full moon four miler Mm. Macaulay. And it was just a great feeling. And I knew how much he was hurting and he knew how much he had wanted to quit and didn't quit. And we got to stand there and we had $5,000 between the two of us at that race. And we had paid for the whole vacation and his first cent he had ever earned as a runner. It was just like, it was that experience I hoped it could be. Mm. And so from my perspective, it was this great success, but I don't know, Macaulay, (laughs) what had gone in for training and what your race was like. It was it was it was a shocker. It was it was difficult because we got out really hard and we ran. Oh, actually, just a, a quick aside that I have just remembered. Bracken, you've done two things. One, you brought me to Hawaii. This was a, a clearly a, a pivotal moment for me in life. The second moment, we were in Hawaii at the start line, and they had about sixteen stickers, and people ran up and they took they took all the stickers. Back then, you could only win money from 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 that first heat, and I saw my way out, and I said, "Oh, great." So I slunk back to the second group. I stood with those guys and you were looking out and you grabbed me and brought me over and the, the race directors were saying, no, 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 no. And someone else had to leave our heat and you held me there until, until the race took off. I booted someone out of our race. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> all, all of this almost didn't happen, but uh, yeah, it was strange because we got out hard and there were just these massive humans around us and, and I'd only ever been around runners and I couldn't understand how someone like Alexander Nicholas had wheels. Uh, but, but, you know, I had salvaged enough speed and fitness that I could, I could uh, eventually get away from those guys. Uh, but that was a painful experience. I remember my vision narrowing to just a small dot and uh, I came around the corner and Bracken was standing in the middle of the uh, corridor with his hands on his hips. <laughs> I was like, you finished? You were disqualified? He's like, no, 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 I'm just waiting for you. He'd been that far ahead. And this is, so the last mile, he kind of dragged me along. I, once again, I felt like I was outside my body and I could just hear him kind of in the background. No, 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 keep going. We have to work this section. No, no, no you must do these box jumps this way. And I'm just kind of following in a daze and 
yeah, going through that finish line and $3,000 check. That was, I mean, just night and day difference between, you know, 48 hours. I went from, from just a worthless human to, to some sort of purpose. Uh, so that was, a, that was an incredible day. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. It really was your second lease, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like this story. And so this, if I'm going to, not like I'm trying to put a bow tie on this already or anything, but so this kind of, I don't know, shook you out of your habits and kind of gave you something new for a while, which I'm assuming springboarded you into whatever you're doing now, but that was kind of phase one. Is that right? Yeah. So Bracken and I uh, went out to Colorado then. Uh, I mean, Daniel, Daniel said, listen, take, take some time, think about this, this new team. And, and, and I did say to him, yes, I'll think about it. But, but in reality, what did I have to think about? Like what options was I weighing there? What did I have behind in Wisconsin? You know, like that, that future was, it was, it was nothing that was, uh, worth, worth chasing. So, um, I told him I was on board and Brack and I went out there and, and, and for, for a couple of weeks, I think we trained at first and then, we fell in love with it. I was on spring break from mm-hmm. teaching. Yeah. So I took my spring break out there and it was fantastic. It was our first taste of Colorado and we were training together. You know, it was right back to the little kids again, going out every second of our day, working out together, lifting together. Mm. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. So for my first time really tasting, tasting that lifestyle, I remember we were driving in along uh 470 and the first time we saw those mountains raising outside of Denver, it's something clicked. I knew, I knew this was the place for us and, uh, and it really was. So we, we didn't, we ended up living there for, for quite a while, but uh, yeah, out in Colorado, it was fun. The, the fresh air, the, the new start, everything, the, the night terrors disappeared. I had the first real sleep in, in six months maybe. And, and uh and things progress from there. But listen, you, you spoke about bow ties. I only had two hours for this, unfortunately. I'm on U.S. time, and I have business calls here in, in, in uh, what, uh, 14, 14 minutes that i gotta, I got to run to. So uh, I, I, have to put a I hate to do that. I feel awful. Well, if he's talking about bow ties, I just want to know, like, uh, how much time do you really have here, Macaulay, before we got to hang up? I think I have, I'll say, seven minutes. We have we we can't finish the story because this isn't like the the story is over and done and we're on a path. Like Macaulay diverts because that's <laughs> what happened. So I, I think part two is necessary, unfortunately or fortunately. Well, I'm not going to be happy if I don't know. Like one, give me like in the elevator speech version highlights of your racing career after you got out of these like you know college doldrums, and then two, like what you're ultimately doing today. I would just like to know those two things, if we could mm-hmm. answer those. Yeah, Bracken and I hit most of the major stadium sprints and got to finish together, uh, which was which was just an incredible thing. We we did that at eight, not at AT and T actually. He smoked me there, but at Boston at Fenway and and uh, yeah, so I was able to to win some stadiums. Um, got to go to a few different countries to race. Had a, a couple good, one great race in Dubai, one not so great race, and. Uh, just uh yeah it was it was great i think we were both the the men's fitness ultimate athlete we won that competition which was a low-key competition but an incredible resume builder to 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 call yourself that uh what else i won the spartan combine have you ever beaten have you ever beaten bracken in a race never yeah no yeah you uh you beat me at the combine the second combine 
I think you raced though at uh, a day or two before it. This was Pennsylvania, that massive mountain. But still, you beat me there, and you beat me at Fenway. Mm. Yeah, that was a little shysty, Kirk. I uh, we we started maybe Bracken has told you this before. We we shuffled our chip time so that we could uh, we could finish together, but it ended up. Forget I started two seconds after him or something on purpose, <laughs> and uh, yeah. we crossed the line together. But he he won. <laughs> All right, man. You fall right in the same camp as Eric Sawinski with that move. Yeah, but uh, yeah, t- today uh, I'm I'm out in Budapest. So I, I went to a race in the Bahamas in in uh, in 2015, and I broke my feet, and uh, <laughs> every, and then I just kept getting. It's not funny. But <laughs> it's not, not one foot, both both foot. Well, one for sure. I never had never had X-rays, but and that still broke till today. Uh, so I, I needed insurance. I got a job at a five-star hotel nestled in the foothills of the, the Rocky Mountains. It's called the Broadmoor. My first day there, I met a Hungarian girl and uh, followed her. Yeah, her visa expired two months later. So I, in 2016, I followed her to Hungary. So we've been back and forth ever since that. And uh, yeah, we're here for here for good. And we've been here for a couple of years now. So I feel good about that bow tie. And I will say that part of it is my fault because I had to start late. So I'll take the credit for this. We have a lot of race stories coming. A cross-country card-counting blackjack tour. Some TV shows, maybe. TV shows, yeah. Oh, God, you did the selection, didn't you? Yeah. Never watched. I don't do reality TV. <laughs> <that's for me. laughs> All right. That's part two. It's good chat with you, man. I've I've heard so much about you, and Bracken just speaks of you as like his favorite human in the world. So it's good to look you eye to eye and have a chat. He's an excellent hype man, and yeah, Kirk, absolute pleasure. Right on, brother. Get to that meeting. See you guys.